Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Frozen 2, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influence pop culture at large. <laughs> A brief disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney+, Plus. so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I can often be found playing games at Litwack's Family Fun Centre and Arcade, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I'm a mere backing percussionist, gently shaking a pair of maracas to the beat as we watch through 57 films and counting. Our lead trumpet player is, of course, Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, I can tell you enjoyed being a lead trumpet player for these <laughs> for this double bill of uh, of Disney films. That was a good one. That's that's one of my favourite. Uh... <laughs> Sorry, I've lost all right. <laughs> I was looking for the word sobriquet. <laughs> What's a sobriquet? A sobriquet is like a, it's like another name you give somebody. It's like a kind of title that somebody gets. Right. I'm gonna slip that into conversation at some point. Uh, next time someone gives me a sobriquet, I'm gonna call them out on it. Very good. And um, the other thing that's been distracting me is I was having to Google. This is incredibly embarrassing. I was having to Google what Litwax Family Fun Center and Arcade was because <laughs> I missed that reference completely. It is, of course, the arcade from Wreck It Ralph. I will pull out a random Disney reference every week that has nothing to do with the films that we're talking about. Yeah, I was like, when did Donald Duck visit Litwax? <laughs> <laughs> family arcade in Rio. I don't remember that happening in this movie. Yeah, my opening reference often has nothing to do with the films that we're discussing. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why, but um, Sam, how are you? I don't know about you, but I'm really excited to start doing this again, because as we alluded to in our bonus episode that, that recently came out, we recorded the first five episodes of Disneyversity kind of last summer, like late summer. We did a bunch of recordings and then life got really busy and I was editing and all sorts of stuff. But now we are back in the saddle. This is our first episode proper for a good few months. And um, I'm really excited to delve into this new era. So how are you feeling about it all? I'm so excited, Ben. I mean, when you texted me one fateful day to ask me to do a podcast where we'll watch and talk about all the Disney movies, this was the period that I was most excited to talk about because we have seen and talked about, you know, everyone's seen and talked about Dumbo and Fantasia and, and Bambi. I mean, maybe you hadn't seen some of them for a long time, but you know, as an animation lecturer, these kinds of things, I'm almost sick to death of talking about them and thinking about them. I shouldn't say that because they're all fantastic films. I love to rewatch a lot of them, but these movies, this next run of six movies that we're going to be looking at, have so completely faded from the public consciousness, barely made an impact on the public consciousness when they first debuted in some cases. And they include some stuff that is just so far outside the boundaries of what people expect from a Disney movie. These were the films I was most excited to talk about. And we're here, and here we are, and you've seen them, 
I'm guessing you hadn't seen any of them before. No, we're going to get into all of this, but um, yeah, this is the real like deep cut stuff. This is the sort of thing where I'm excited for a round to come up on Pointless. There's like naming obscure Disney films, and the ones that I'm going to pull out on that day will be things like Saludos Amigos and The Three Caballeros, because I had basically never even heard of these, let alone seen them. So yeah, I'm happy for you that we're heading into some niche territory. Mm. And I'm aware that for the listeners as well, this is probably going to be uncharted territory for a lot of you. So this might be your first time watching these films or listening to people talk about them. And spoiler alert, I've really enjoyed these two so far. So yeah, great stuff. That is great stuff. Would it be fair to say that you were somewhat reluctant to even cover these movies starting off? Because I know I had conversations about... (laughs) whether or not they counted and i was like no ben they count we're watching them it's gonna be great yeah i mean well i was excited to watch some stuff that i'd never seen before or never really heard much about but at the same time it's like you look through the list of disney films and you're hit with some big stuff in the first run of five movies these massive classics and then suddenly you hit a wall of like huh what's this huh what's that and then you look into what they are and they're sort of these anthology package films and you go i've never heard of these films they're not like strictly narrative features but you are completely correct in saying that they are still listed as Walt Disney Animation Studios mainline releases they are part of the Disney animated classics brand So yeah, we're going to cover them all, but as we said in our bonus episode, we are going to be covering all of these, but two at a time. So that's enough from us, we're all sat down, the register's complete, and it's time for class to begin. This time, after the elephine elegy that was Bambi, we head into a whole new phase of the Disney catalogue, the package films era, in which we'll be tackling two films per week across the next three instalments. First up, it's time to take a trip through various countries and cultures across Latin America, in 1942's Saludos Amigos and 1944's The Three Caballeros. I mean, there's not exactly a lot of plot in these films, Sam. As we've said, they are sort of anthologies, they are a mixture of little stories here and there. But do you want to give us a quick rundown first of Saludos Amigos and of The Three Caballeros? What are they about? Well, both films, as you've said are Disney's way of exploring the various countries and cultures of Latin America. And they both do so in slightly different ways. Um, They're both anthologies of short segments, effectively. But Saludos Amigos is built around a framing device of documentary footage or pseudo-documentary footage telling the story of the Disney cruise journey around South America, gaining inspiration for these films. And The Three Caballeros is slightly more narratively driven It focuses on Donald Duck, who's celebrating his birthday, for which his friends from Latin America have sent him various presents and surprises, and these different gifts are our gateways into the stories told in that film. So, Ben, did you know anything whatsoever about these films? Literally nothing at all, other than the fact that you're really excited about them. And you can kind of tell, obviously, from the titles that we're heading to a very different area of the world, like different languages. I I didn't even know that they were Disney films that had titles that weren't in the English language. Mm. Um, I didn't know what Saludos Amigos meant. I mean, I know Amigos as friends. (laughs) But yeah, I knew nothing about them. I didn't even know that this era existed, apart from when we've been talking about these films. So... I have to say I had very little in the way of expectations of what these films would be other than the fact that I knew that they were sort of a collection of short stories. They were actually slightly more narrative than I thought they would be. 
I'm really looking forward to discussing the differences between Saludos Amigos and The Three Caballeros because they're quite different films. Like you say, they take very different approaches. And especially for Saludos Amigos, the framing of that I found really interesting and really enjoyable. So yeah, I, I didn't really know much about these at all. So after having watched them for the first time, what are your initial impressions? What stood out about these films? I really enjoyed both of them. And the thing that stood out overall was, don't get me wrong, I was really impressed by Fantasia when we watched Fantasia. But these two films, it's kind of like they just said, do you know what? Imagine if Fantasia was just like fun and colourful. <laughs> and that's what these films are. They they are so centred around music and telling these short stories that are very linked to nature and to different cultures and different views of the world but it's so much more bouncy and vibrant i'm not i'm not a classical music head we spoke about this in the fantasia episode i'm not a classical music guy i mean i'm i don't go deep on like samba music and and stuff like that but there is something so infectious about the latin american rhythms that are at play in the music here that for so much of of both of these films i found myself tapping my feet the whole time so i really enjoyed them and they kind of yeah just came out of nowhere for me i'm so happy to hear that I'd be interested to know where you would place these films in relation to the other package films that we're going to watch. Um, Mm. How well you think they hold up in comparison to those later films, whether you think that they're significantly better than those, because these two movies are a lot more narratively and thematically cohesive than the other package films that we're going to look at. So it'd be great to hear your thoughts on this whole era towards the end. Yeah, I so I haven't skipped ahead. I haven't seen anything past Caballeros as we record this, so I have no idea what comes next. Um, but you're right that these two are kind of linked together, which is partly why we wanted to tackle them in one episode. So on that front, we covered this a bit in the bonus episode, but do you want to talk a little bit about the context, about this move to package films? Like, why, why did this happen? Last thing we were talking about, Dumbo and Bambi. So how do we get here? Well, all of the package films and the fact that Disney was moving into this era of package films, it all is rooted in one way or another in World War II. And the thing that the production cycles of all of these films have in common is that they were taking place either during or in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, during which Disney's profits were hit massively, largely by the fact that they were unable to exhibit the films in Europe to any great extent. And a lot of their personnel were either actually fighting in the war or conscripted to produce propaganda films for the military. But Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros actually come from a much more specific initiative and their existence isn't just related to the fact that Disney were trying to package together shorter and cheaper films to be released as features rather than producing one big budget lavish film, which is going to be more so the case with the later movies that we'll look at. But with Amigos and Caballeros, they actually come from a specific government initiative that Disney was roped into, so to speak. And I imagine that is to do with the move to telling Latin American stories, because we spoke in the last set of episodes about how the early Disney films, they come from a sort of European context and a USA context. So you had things like Pinocchio and Snow White were drawing from German and Italian stories. And then with the move to Dumbo and Bambi, those were quite American stories. So what prompted this move to telling Latin American stories and exploring this variety of cultures um, across Mexico and South America? Well, in 1940, Walt Disney was approached by the CIA 
ear. <laughs> oh my god, I was like, wait, where is this going? This sounds juicy. <laughs> no, the CIA ear, the coordinator of inter-American affairs. Okay. So this is basically a branch of the US government um, who were piloting what was known as the Good Neighbor Initiative. And the reasoning behind the Good Neighbor Initiative, the specific kind of thinking behind it, differs depending on what kind of source you look at. It was a a program of government efforts to improve relationships with Latin America, with the countries of Central and South America. And every Disney-related source that I've read links this directly to what's described as the growing influence of the Axis powers and fascist ideology in Latin American countries. But when you go a bit broader than that and start reading other historical sources, it seems that this was something that was brewing before America was even involved in World War II. So it's just a, a, a broader initiative to try and improve relationships between those countries, which was perhaps given more urgency by America's entry into the war and the fears associated with that. So for Hollywood studios, this also opened up avenues of distribution, new avenues of distribution, while Europe was cut off. So there was a lot of incentive for Hollywood studios to get involved in this. Yeah, that that makes sense because we spoke over the last few episodes about how, yeah, after this initial huge launch of, of Snow White, suddenly all of these international territories that they made a massive amount of money from on that film they couldn't really release anything. So this was a chance to release things that would, fingers crossed, be hits in uh, Central and South America. Yeah, absolutely. So lots of different, it wasn't just Disney, lots of different studios and movie stars were getting Mm. involved and going on goodwill tours of South America. But even at the time, it seems like Disney's involvement was seen as taking it to the next level was because of the huge international popularity of characters like Donald Duck who's going to be a main feature in both of these movies the fact that Disney was getting involved the fact that Disney was going on this goodwill tour of Latin America which Saludos Amigos in part documents was a really big deal was seen as a huge coup to kind of get Disney involved in this So what Disney was initially contracted to do was to go on this goodwill tour of, in this case, South America initially. They didn't visit Mexico on this tour with a bunch of his directors and story artists and animators and musicians visit a bunch of these countries and eventually produce a series of short films that was what this was initially conceived as a series of short films but eventually when they actually started making these movies they figured it was a better idea to compile the first four into a feature film and that's how saludos amigos came about yeah that totally makes sense because as i've alluded to the framing of saludos amigos includes yeah live action footage of of disney personnel on these trips but the films are definitely connected. Obviously, there are characters that cross over. So how did Saludos Amigos then springboard into the Three Caballeros? Well, Saludos Amigos was, spoilers, successful. It was a success on its own terms. It wasn't a huge blockbuster, but it did well enough at home and in Latin America that it was considered mission accomplished. So instead of producing this series of shorts, they decided to go full throttle into making another feature film. Two of these films from this cycle of shorts were already completed, which is why the first 20 minutes or so of The Three Caballeros is basically two self-contained cartoons. But then after that, they went headfirst into making it a feature and conceived a broader narrative to tie the whole thing together. Very good. So shall we kick off our main discussion? Should we get stuck in first to Saludos Amigos and then into The Three Caballeros? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
First up then, let's talk about Saludos Amigos. This is a totally different kind of Disney movie to any we've really watched before. There is a bit of Fantasia DNA in there, I would say, but it's a 40-minute feature film. It's a bunch of shorts, there's a bit of live action, and it begins with all of the animators and the Disney team getting on a plane to go and visit some countries in Latin America, looking for new personalities, music, and dances, is what it says. And I had no idea that this was going to be part of the film, and I actually really liked the live-action stuff. I thought it worked so well for this film to give it the context of the Disney team goes to other cultures and other countries to find inspiration, and in a very straightforward way, instead of spinning that into thinking, well, well, we were able to tell a story involving this culture, they just present it in a sort of factual way, but with that Disney style. Maybe I'm really naive, but I thought there was a real sincerity to the cultural exchange idea at play in both of these films, but definitely in Saludos Amigos, of this very American art form of these animated Disney films, but using it as a vehicle to explore and to educate other people about these cultures. Yeah, it really foregrounds the actual artists that they were collaborating with as well, the you know, the musicians and the the painters that inspired their work on these films. We actually see some of them briefly and meet some of them. Another effect of using this live action footage was that a lot of Americans watching this, a lot of North Americans watching this, were seeing footage of these places for perhaps the first time. People didn't realise that Rio looked like that. People didn't realise that Rio had skyscrapers and a luscious beach and things like that. A lot of people almost thought of these countries as being third world countries. And obviously that wasn't the case, so... It gave some North American audiences a more realistic view and a more sympathetic view of what these places looked like. Mm. I mean, as with um, some of the other films that we've spoken about so far, both of these films come up at the beginning with the warning about outdated cultural depictions, and they've slightly changed the way that they do that since we recorded the last batch of episodes, so now it comes up for 10 seconds before the film actually starts, rather than just in the description of the movie. And I totally understand that these depictions come from... 70 odd years ago and that there are probably a lot of things that aren't necessarily representative or accurate but like I said it feels like there is a sincerity to trying to accurately and educationally for North American audiences yeah depict other people and other ways of lives and other cities something that I really liked as the film begins and the animators are sort of flying off to these destinations you get a cartoon map and you get a bouncing plane bouncing across all these different destinations which really reminded me of the start of Dumbo, of that cartoonish map of America, zooming into that map, having my good pal little Casey Jr. toot toot tooting along. I liked that link. It felt very Disney in the context of, of what we've seen before. So shall we get into some of the individual short films here? I really want to know what you thought about some of these segments, especially because this is our first encounter on this podcast with some of our good Disney friends. This is the first time we've met Donald, the first time we've met Goofy. And I'm excited about this because I know Donald Duck is your absolute boy. I know Donald Duck is one of your mega faves. And he's in the first short film here, which is uh, Lake Titicaca. And Sam, my main impression of Donald Duck, especially from this, is that I wouldn't understand a single word he was saying if I hadn't have watched this with the subtitles on. He is indecipherable. I know he was indecipherable, but I think we still have to give a shout out to the voice actor Clarence Nash, who developed an absolutely iconic vocal characterization for this guy, right? And it's so hard to do. 
I don't know how they keep finding new voice actors to replace the old voice actors to play Donald Duck. I think it's a miracle they found even one guy who could do that voice. Have you ever tried it? I never have. Now, Sam, you've just teed yourself up for me saying, you've got a PhD in this. Can you do a Donald Duck voice? I can do a really good Mickey and Goofy. I can't do Donald Duck. I mean, I can do a I've, noise. I've heard your Mickey. Your Mickey is good. You did that on one of the earlier podcasts. You did it in uh, in the Fantasia pod. It was great. Are you going to have a go at a Donald? I can do the basic, like... <laughs> But I can't, I can't see anything. <laughs> it's being able to make that noise and also talk at the same time. Like, no wonder you can't understand what the hell he's talking about at any moment. But this didn't put audiences off, Ben, because Donald Duck is not just one of my top boys. He was the world's top boy in the 1940s. He was absolutely huge. He was bigger than Mickey. That feels like when John Lennon said he was bigger than Jesus, but <laughs> Donald Duck was bigger than Mickey at this point in time. I mean, in this segment, he is the celebrated North American tourist, they call him. And yeah, that feels like quite accurate billing for his status at the time. So through this segment, we get Donald at Lake Titicaca, trying out boats, having interactions with llamas. I have to say, the llamas, not only for me, felt like it was preempting the Emperor's New Groove, which we'll get to a long, long way down the line. Uh, but also there was a really funny moment where it was about how the llamas move and they take bits of footage and then reverse it in a way that I was like, it's Tenet. It's the Tenet of llamas. And you get some fun Donald stuff of the set piece on the bridge, which I really enjoyed, which is Donald and the llama trying to cross a bridge and all the slats are falling away and they're having to sort of create a train of slats moving forward to get across the bridge. It was very, very cartoony in a, this is my reference that I always use, but in a very Looney Tunes style, which feels completely different to the Disney stuff we've seen elsewhere. It feels like this is the most exaggerated version of that we've seen so far. But I mean, that's Disney feature films, right? Because don't forget Mm. that these kinds of shorts, including the Donald Duck and Goofy series, have been coming out at a steady pace all the way through the period we've been discussing on this podcast. I've never stopped. And and these kinds of shorts predate the Disney feature films as well. It is interesting that they're now being incorporated fully into a feature film, but then it's also significant that the feature film we're talking about is a compilation of shorts that were originally intended to be released individually. Mm. I think at this point, and we'll see that this is the case when they return to making feature-length films, it was still considered that this kind of storytelling and this kind of humour and this kind of aesthetic wasn't suitable for long-form storytelling, but it lends itself really well to what these films are. Mm. And I think it lends itself to the production as well. Like you said, obviously it was intended to be a short film, but we talked about in the Dumbo episode that that film was made essentially fast and cheap. And with having fewer resources, with animators off to war and all of that going on, I imagine it was a lot cheaper to make stuff like this rather than the more lavish and detailed and experimental stuff like Pinocchio and Fantasia. I mean, the the production values on these films are comparable to those of the shorts that they were making prior to this. In fact, if you compare these shorts especially the first three, the Donald and Goofy cartoons and the one featuring Pedro the Plane, if you compare these films to your average Mickey Mouse cartoon, something like Clock Cleaners, an absolute classic Mickey cartoon starring Donald and Goofy, they look cheaper. I think the individual budget for these films will have been lower than any given Mickey Mouse film, would be my guess. So you mentioned Pedro the Plane there, and Donald Duck might be your boy, but after watching this... Pedro the Plane is my boy. I thought he was absolutely adorable. He's so cute with his little face and his little plane wings flying through to get the mail. 
Oh, what a brave little guy. So Pedro the Plain comes from the second segment, which is focused on Chile. And it's about uh, this kind of anthropomorphized plane who looks like something from the Cars universe, right? Yes, from the from the Cars sort of semi-official spin-off planes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but less horrifying because I hate anything in Cars that has eyes that isn't a car is kind of horrifying. I hate the tractors. I hate the blimp is the worst. Yeah, not a massive fan of cars and not a fan of the anthropomorphized vehicles that aren't cars. Do you also find it horrifying that at one point in this, Pedro is at school and you see a diagram of a plane skeleton? That was kind of horrifying. I was also horrified at the sort of just the weird gender binary of planes like the gendered mother plane and the father plane was like that's an outdated cultural depiction right there um but i loved pedro on his little mission to go and and get the mail from across the aconcagua mountain going over to mendoza to pick up the mail but when he was flying back when he was having to fly through the scary storm i was less scared of the mountain than of him losing the mail he has the bag of mail tucked over one of his wings and he's flying all over the place and i was like you just that's gonna fall off any second i was terrified of him losing the mail and then pedro died he just sort of died and it was like wait what is going on and then suddenly at the end they just go actually he's not dead and they don't tell you how or why the story was a bit weird but i just loved that little plane i mean you might say that he's a bad plane he's bad at his job oh he's a child he's a literal child sam he shouldn't have a job i don't have too much to say about pedro the plane to be quite honest (laughs) i find i find it somewhat unremarkable although i should have predicted that he would have been one of your favorites I do have one fun Pedro fact, which is that the idea for this short actually predated the trip to South America. It was going to be its own standalone thing, and the plane was going to be called Peter Your Tool. Oh, well, that's cute. Either way, I would have watched a feature-length film about this adorable little plane. But let's move on then, because another one of your boys is coming up. The next segment is El Gaucho Goofy. And you're a bit of a Goofy stan as well, right? Huge fan of Goofy. Especially a huge fan of this cycle, which had only just begun by the time this film was released, of Goofy parody instructional videos. Which is one of the things that Goofy's best known for. Had you seen some of these films like on TV as a kid, the instructional Goofy movies? I don't think I had because, yeah, a lot of what's happening in El Gaucho Goofy is just him kind of demonstrating how to be a gaucho, which is a sort of cowboy-like figure, and just being bad at it, which was kind of my beef in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs with old Dopey. So, yeah, I have to say, I'm maybe not as much of a Goofy stan as, as you oh. are. I mean, this this was an iteration of what I would say was a really popular series of films, even if you'd never heard of them, where Goofy interacts with this kind of stuffy upper class narrator who's trying to teach him how to ski or how to play football or whatever and this was originally in production as a how to be a cowboy movie and then in relation to saludos amigos they decided to shift it up a bit to illustrate the differences between the cowboy and the argentinian gaucho which actually leads me to one of the things that i found most interesting watching this movie which is that this is pitched as In all the historical accounts, something that was meant to appeal to Latin American viewers, something that was made to bridge the gap between these countries and to reach out a hand of friendship to Latin America. But these shorts seem so clearly geared towards instead educating an American audience, right? 
I'm not saying that I don't see what any Latin American audience would get out of them. I think obviously seeing your culture engaged with to a reasonable degree of accuracy by someone like Disney and by these really popular characters would be very pleasurable, but they seem to be geared towards educating an American audience, telling them about the culture of these countries, rather than aimed at somebody who already knew all of this stuff, because it was their culture. Completely, yeah, especially with this Goofy segment, because my main takeaway from this was that it's a nice mix of kind of just funny, cartoony, goofy antics, while also trying to be genuinely quite informative about the culture of the Argentine gauchos. I mean, I didn't love this segment, but I appreciated what it was trying to do. Um, my favourite moment of the goofy antics was him spiking his butt on the spears. That was pretty good. And something this has in common with the Donald segment as well is that Donald and Goofy are positioned as American kind of interlopers who are perhaps with good intentions trying to take on the culture of these countries or trying to educate themselves about the culture of these countries. But they're the butt of the joke, not the culture. Mm-hmm. So I think there are problematic elements in these films related to the extent to which some of these societies are exoticized. Um, particularly by the narration. For example, in Peru, it describes their music as strange and exotic. It describes it as being the land of the Incas, for example, rather than focusing on the contemporary people who lived there. But um, I think it was a smart move to make the predominant focal point of the humour in these segments the American characters who were making fools of themselves rather than making comic stereotypes out of the Latin American people. Yeah, and, and it positions the Disney characters in the position of the Disney animators of going over and learning about this this culture. I'd much rather that than, like you say, let's have a gaucho character and have it actually be goofy would feel a bit awkward. If that would feel more like cultural appropriation rather than what we get here, which is these characters, yeah, trying to learn about these different countries and cultures. But those three shorts are kind of all a warm-up to the final segment of Saludos Amigos, which is Aquarela do Brasil, where we're off to Rio, and this is where we meet Joe Carioca, who is an old Papagayo parrot. Sam, what's your thoughts on Joe Carioca? Were you excited for me to get to meet this character? Is he someone who holds a special place for you? I mean, he doesn't appear in anywhere near as many things as someone like Donald or Goofy, although we'll talk later on, he has recurred on some occasions. But I'm not intimately familiar with the guy, but from what I've seen, I love him. He's currently my um, avatar on Disney+, Plus. the recently dropped Joe Carioca avatar, and I snapped that right up. He's just a cool guy, right? He's just so slick. Yeah, he is a pretty cool dude, and it's fun to see him interacting with Donald, because they are just worlds apart. Like you say, Joe Carioca is so slick and laid back, and Donald is uptight and angry and cranky, and they make a really fun double act in this. He was voiced by a singer called uh, Jose Oliveira, who, what his stage name was, Zay Carioca, and... Joe's actual name is Jose Carioca, so they actually basically named the character after the performer, which is something that th- this interaction with an integration of Latin American performers into the films is something that the three caballeros would take up to a far greater extent. But I think you do get a lot of personality. I don't really know much about this singer and what his stage persona was, but you can feel that, you know, even though he's just appeared and he's only in this film for a couple of minutes, he feels like a lived-in character. I love the introduction to this segment. There was a moment that just really struck me as so creative, which was taking us into the world of Aquarela do Brasil, and you have a paintbrush painting the scenery, and I love that layer that you will have had an animator hand-drawing and painting 
this sequence of a paintbrush painting the scenery and then the colour and the water and everything just springs to life once they kind of create the basic backdrop. It was just beautiful and so vibrant and this is the segment especially when I'm talking about, hey, what if Fantasia was fun? That this is, it's samba and it's colourful and it's vibrant and you have these really like cool livable characters just having a big old song and dance session. I loved it. It's really, really beautiful to watch, isn't it? I think the the fluidity of the animation kind of syncs up with, obviously, the music, but also with the visual image of paint dripping from the paintbrush. Everything that the paintbrush paints, uh, particularly like the, the river, the stream takes on that aspect of fluidity and you just don't want this to end you just don't want it to stop but then it does it's over really quickly it's over just as it's getting going (laughs) which is a shame i mean in terms of how infectious it is i love that donald duck as angry as he is there's a bit where he's kind of fuming his face is fuming but his butt can't help but start like jigging to the music and um i really liked as well that jose carioca is kind of buzzed to be meeting donald duck that was a nice touch as well like that obviously you've got these two legends one from north america one from South America who are just like buzzing off each other and vibing together yeah you get a great dynamic where it feels like Joe was really excited to meet Donald and then when he did quickly realised that he was a bit of a tool (laughs) (laughs) and just kind of plays off him a bit in almost like a Bugs Bunny suave kind of way there's this great moment where um, Donald drinks some kind of alcoholic beverage I don't know I don't drink you might be able to tell me what it was Ben and it, it affects him such that a burst of flame comes out of his mouth. And then Joe Carioca just coolly lights his cigar on the fire and takes a puff. It's like, oh my god, this guy is so cool. He is such a cool dude. And I can tell you exactly what that drink is. Because I loved that in this film, Donald Duck drinks cachaça. And that is a sugarcane rum. And my favourite drink, if I'm at a bar that does cocktails, my go-to drink would be a caipirinha, which is cachaça and lime and a lot of sugar and ice and that's basically it and it's very sharp and very sweet at the same time it's kind of in a similar-ish vein to something like a margarita where it gives you that that sort of sour like and then you get that sweet sort of lime hit that's my favorite drink sam we'll have sat together many times obviously you don't drink but when we've been out to bars in newcastle together there'll be many times when we've sat together and i'll have been drinking a caipirinha so next time i'm gonna burp a load of flame and then you can light a cigar from those flames if you want yeah all right i'll take up smoking cigars just so i can reenact that moment can't wait so that kind of brings us to the end of saludos amigos and yeah i just thought this film overall it feels quite lightweight i think potentially intentionally it was not designed necessarily as a major heavyweight feature in the way that the last five disney films have but i did think there was something really quite sincere and beautiful about this about this film i think there's something really genuine about the way that the disney team seemed to have been properly inspired by the sights and sounds and the lives of people in in south america and in latin american countries so i i'm really glad that we actually did (laughs) tackle this film in the end Yeah, I think it's something that if you go into it with reasonable expectations, if you know that you're not expecting something anywhere near the calibre of a Fantasia or a Bambi, then I think you'll be entertained and I think you'll be impressed by some of it. Let's leave Saludos Amigos there then. Adios Amigos. Oh, that was great. That's staying in. (laughs) So two years later, the studio releases The Three Caballeros and... There's definitely shared DNA in there because 
Donald Duck is back, and so is Joe Carioca. So as you said before, the sort of framing narrative for this is that it's Donald Duck's birthday, and he receives loads of gifts that draw him into stories, into books, into songs. Sam, the first thing I want to bring up from the Three Caballeros is that Donald Duck's birthday is Friday the 13th. Has that always been like an unlucky date? How important is it in the Disney lore that that's Donald Duck's birthday? (laughs) The thing about that is, Ben, is that Friday the 13th isn't a date, is it? Friday the 13th is a day that occurs rarely. It's not his birthday on Friday the 13th every year. But is it significant that this birthday for him is is a Friday the 13th? I don't know. I just It struck me that you don't just pluck that date out of nowhere, or maybe you do. Well, he's an unlucky guy. That's one of his, his hallmarks, is that he's an unlucky guy. So I think the idea that he's, he was born on Friday the 13th might be significant. I think, okay, I'm going to at some point look up at an actual calendar when Friday the 13th, 1942 would have been, and then try and figure out when Donald Duck was born. Because I think <laughs> you have to assume that his actual original birthday was Friday the 13th, when he was actually born. And that also his birthday this year is Friday the 13th, right? On this particular year in 1944. And that means that if we find out when Friday the 13th was in 1944, then Donald's actual birthday is the previous Friday the 13th, which fell on that exact date, which was possibly hundreds of years ago. I don't know how the maths on that works out. It wouldn't surprise me if Donald Duck was secretly, yeah, hundreds and hundreds of years old. He's an ancient entity who has been flung through space and time. But um, like you alluded to earlier, there is a slightly strange through line in The Three Caballeros because the first segment we get is something called The Cold-Blooded Penguin, which is just a fun little adventure about some penguins. This this penguin who's sick of being cold, which, as we record this in a freezing cold January, I definitely related to. And then there is a section that's all about just different birds from around the world, and I was like, okay, well, Don Duck is also a bird. It's just this just a film about, like, birds of the world? But then as it goes on, it's kind of not. It's a weird hodgepodge of, of different things. Yeah, it, it's all about birds this and birds that, and then suddenly you hit with Burrito the Flying Donkey. <laughs> Which I yeah. guess he's avian, he flies, he takes to the skies. Yeah, so. I guess so. It's, it's just a slightly strange connective tissue that doesn't really feel like it hangs together. But I have to say, I, I did enjoy the penguins. I love penguins. They're some of my favourite animals. And so obviously we get the Mary Poppins penguins down the line, even though we're not going to cover Poppins because it's not one of the animated classics. But Pablo the penguin, I thought was just like super cute, even though he's grumpy, the way that he keeps warming his butt on the fire, super cute. And yeah, the animation style here is so much more simplistic, it's much less lavish and ambitious than than the main features, as with Saludos Amigos, but yeah, I thought this was like a fun and enjoyable sequence. There's a really clever moment where he's in the bathtub, sinking, he's on his way to the island, and he's in the bathtub and it's sinking, and he then is trying to work out how to propel himself, and he jams the shower into the plug hole, so the water that is flooding in from the sea is fired out of the shower head, and propels them forward. I thought that was really clever. Well, try it yourself next time you're in that situation, (laughs) see if it works. Yeah, I don't massively care for this. I think this is possibly a symptom of watching Saludos Amigos and Three Caballeros on the trot one after the other. I think by this point I was kind of done with these little kind of saccharine simplistic shorts and... um, I don't know, just the penguin doesn't want to be called. That doesn't do it for me. I don't know. I just <laughs> It just seems so too easy, right? Oh, he's, what's the character? Oh, he's a penguin. He doesn't want to be called. Several years later, 
Universal when it reduced a character called Chili Willy and try and make a whole series of shorts based on this exact same premise, the penguin doesn't want to be called. Crap. I don't care for it. Don't like it. Dull. And that leads us to the penguins of Madagascar. Because it wasn't their whole thing that... Oh, no, they are they from Madagascar? No. No, they're not. They're, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, no, so they're the penguins of Madagascar. But then isn't there a bit where they get captured? I don't know. The penguins aren't from Madagascar. The penguins are of Madagascar. Of Madagascar, the, the film. The Madagascar franchise, yeah. So, they're, not, they're from the zoo, <laughs> and they escape the zoo to try and get back to the Arctic and then end up in Madagascar. That's the... Look, I'm not going to recommend you go back and watch Madagascar because it's not a it's good movie. It's been a long time. But... It's been a while. Just um, familiarise yourself with the basics. I can't believe I embarrassed myself in front of you so much. Um, let's move on from the penguins because <laughs> um, then we meet all sorts of other birds and it's a fun introduction to all the birds, but the main one worth talking about, the Araquan? Araquan? Araquan. He was a cool dude and he keeps coming back and I loved the way that he runs around with his little toot 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 song. But as you said, you mentioned Chili Willy before and I feel like the Araquan or Araquan has a bit of a woody woodpecker energy in that he's just like is very fast and runs in and annoys people and makes noises and then runs away but he was fun he was cool yeah very woody woodpecker um similar red hair as well another character who i don't really care for but woody woodpecker predates the araquan and then universal ripped off the penguin with chili willy so uh, that swings and roundabouts they probably thought that was fair game I mean, the next proper segment from there is the flying gauchito, which is which is the flying donkey story. This was probably my least favourite of both of these films. It just didn't really do much for me. I thought it was significant that the flying donkey itself looks quite like the Pegasus from Fantasia, like the little baby Pegasus. But yeah, just didn't do much for me. Do you like the segment much? Nope. <laughs> Again, like <laughs> I said, I'm kind of... Well, both of these shorts were ones that didn't make it into... Saludos Amigos. I mean, I don't, I don't think they were finished by the time Saludos Amigos was being put together, but they were, you know, the fifth and sixth highest priority films for them to produce when they came back from this trip. And yeah, they, they don't really hold up to those shorts and they really make the start of this film drag. I think if they had to be included, split up and reinserted at different points so that you don't just get the two of them straight away. I do like that the flying gauchito ends with the kid and his donkey flying away and him saying the line, and neither me nor him were ever seen again for as long as we lived. So where's he narrating from? From seclusion, from the bunker. Hiding away, but they don't even get away with the money. They drop the money. So why is he hiding out? He's just sick of society. We live in a society, man. He he just wants out. (laughs) He's getting off the grid. Fair play to him. I mean, I I think those segments feel kind of inessential because what comes next is, for me, again, one of the absolute highlights of Three Caballeros. This is where it really kicks into gear. And this is with Bahia, which is about the Brazilian state. And this is where Joe Jose Carioca comes back. I loved this segment, Sam. Are you a big fan of Bahia? Huge fan of Bahia. What did you like about it in particular? And then I'll tell you what I like about it. Again, like the final segment of Saludos Amigos, it was just so vibrant and colourful and fun and playful. I think whenever Joe Carioca comes in, there is an element of playfulness. Like that moment where he shrinks Donald Duck down with a big hammer. They're like jumping through the pages of a book together. It's just beautiful and playful and... They have mischief together and 
there's there's music and with Bahia in particular again something I completely didn't expect was how much live action was in this like this feels like a very significant moment how much live action and animation is sharing the frame in in this particular story yeah it was not the first time this had been done by any means it wasn't even the first time this had been done by Disney it was the first time this had been done anywhere near that well anywhere near Mm. that convincingly with this kind of budget behind it and this was actually the the film was marketed to an extent around this premise it was put forward as like a huge innovation some of its marketing material and a lot of the criticism about it addresses that in one way or another a lot lot of the reviews talk directly about that element first and foremost Mm. um it is really striking it is impressive i think the segments the sections where it's rear projection where you've got the female singer uh, who is aurora miranda uh, carmen miranda's sister so sort of the danny minogue of 1940s brazil <laughs> when you've got her dancing in front of a screen on which the images have been projected that's kind of obvious but halfway through production they came up with a new kind of optical printer which allowed them to integrate their animated cells with the live action footage in a really coherent way when you're watching it you can tell the difference between those two kinds of shot right yeah completely and like you said it's so convincing you can really see her reacting to donald and joe carioca and and vice versa and she puts in a great performance because obviously she's she's singing and she's got an amazing screen presence and yeah just the way that she is bouncing off characters who for her actually aren't there is amazing this must have blown people's minds i mean it blew people's minds we'll talk about the reviews a bit later some people were a bit sniffy about it in concept rather than in execution let's say but yeah Mm -hmm. it was kind of a big deal and you would see other movies like uh, anchors away starring gene kelly opposite tom and jerry a few years later which are using similar techniques so it was somewhat influential even if you know you wouldn't get any other major development in this area until something like mary poppins came along as much as I loved the Bahia segment, it does introduce one of the weird strands of the Three Caballeros, which is horny Donald Duck. Donald Duck lusting after human women, chasing women around. It's pretty weird. Yeah, so basically, this sequence, again, to tee up what it actually is, Joe Carioca takes Donald to Bahia, and he comes across Aurora Miranda dancing through the streets and they start dancing together until she starts dancing with other human men at which point donald flies into literally a murderous rage and starts trying to kill them with hammers etc because <laughs> donald is really really attracted to this human woman mm-hmm. there's <laughs> there's no way there's no way around it. i mean the word is the word is horny isn't it yeah i mean there is a seat there is a literal moment where he becomes a little horny devil um, and, and that says it all. Yeah, the Donald lusting after human women and being a, a toxic dude and trying to kill poor Tangerine Man with a big hammer. Uh, it was it, It's weird. But, um, I mean, away from that, the a lot of the animation here is so vibrant. There's a point towards the end where all these colours just start pulsing. It becomes so psychedelic. Everyone's dancing. It's a big dance breakdown. And I loved there's a little moment where 
right towards the end of the segment, the whole city is kind of bopping in a bouncy way. All of the buildings are kind of grooving to the music. And that, Sam, this is going to be my little mentioning an animation thing, kind of reminded me of the movement in Max Fleischer films. The way that all the buildings are kind of wobbling and wiggling had that sort of Fleischer energy to me. Yeah, right. And those Fleischer movies, um, things like the Betty Boop shorts, were very closely tied with jazz music, with the kind of improvisatory and syncopated qualities of that style of music something that is to an extent shared by the samba music in this sequence so you can definitely see the animators drawn from and being inspired by the kinds of music it's a different way of attempting to visualize the way that music can make you feel to what fantasia was attempting which was trying to match the grandiosity and the scope of classical animation. This is more about the rhythm and the music and the dancers as well, of course, that are associated with it, because samba is closely associated with the dance. So before we leave Bahia, I think this is also a really good opportunity to talk about one of the chief creative forces behind this film, who was also one of the first women in a significant creative role at Disney, who's a woman called Mary Blair, a concept artist. And Mary Blair, I'm a huge fan of her work. Um, if anyone wants to see the kind of stuff that she put out, I'll, I'll put some of the concept art up on our Twitter. But um, she would go on to work on a lot of Disney movies. She would do concept art for Cinderella and Peter Pan uh, and Alice in Wonderland. But this is the film in which her creative vision and Saludos Amigos, but chiefly this and chiefly this segment in which her creative vision really shines through the most. It was kind of her passion project. She was one of the animators who went on the tour of South America. And even if you look at the art that she put out before that trip and the art that she put out after, you can see that she was really inspired in her own work by this journey and by these cultures. The stuff that she did before was kind of impressionistic in a style that certainly wasn't the typical Disney style, but her art after these films is really striking. It's radically minimalist by Disney standards. It makes stunning use of colour and contrast. It's graphic and it's aesthetic, but it's also soft-edged and organic and childlike. And she was Walt's favourite artist. Mm. But her style really jarred with the Disney house style. So for the most part, her concept illustrations were mainly used to get down the kind of colour palettes of films like Cinderella and Peter Pan. But on this film, the much looser approach to this movie in general give the animators the opportunity to really closely mimic some of her concept art. So specifically, the scene in which Donald and Joe travel on the train mm-hmm. to Bahia, which is set against this completely minimalist black background with this almost kind of pastel crayon style drawn of a train moving through it, which really stands out even among all of the various crazy art styles in this film. That's the closest to a, an original Mary Blair image that any Disney film would ever come. Yeah, I loved that so much. I, I That was so distinct to me. It looked beautiful. And I mean, it was a really fun and playful moment as well. I love that in that sequence, the Arakuen is causing mischief, running around, drawing other tracks for the train as it flies off in different directions. Just beautiful. Yeah, amazing. So this is the film where you can really feel her impact the most, would you say? Yeah, absolutely, by miles. A lot of the um, Disney animators are said to have not 
completely respected her as an artist and to have been quite frustrated when Walt asked them to mimic her work in these later films like Cinderella and Peter Pan because if you look at her paintings it's difficult to translate them to animation let alone while remaining in any way faithful to the Disney house style but this film gave her the opportunity to exert more of an influence and that's why this is one of the most visually striking Disney films that they've made to that point. It's, it really stands out. That Bayer sequence in particular, that's the purest distillation of her aesthetic on film. So that's another reason why this movie holds quite a special place in my heart. So as we leave Bayer, there's a slightly awkward moment where Joe Carioca and Donald Duck are doing black magic to get back to size. That was a bit of a weird note. Um, there's some fun stuff in there because Donald is contorted into all these different shapes at one point he's a big sort of wiggly sausage and then he's a bowling pin some fun stuff there but at this point in the film we have only met two of our titular caballeros and the third is yet to come as the film moves to mexico so the final segment of the film takes us to mexico and that's when we meet panchito pistoles which is i can see that this is one of the slightly awkward caricatures of like he's a gun-toting mexican rooster but this is where the three caballeros come together. Yeah, I mean, Panchito, another really energetic and likeable character. The gun thing, in addition to being something of a stereotype, is also, like, you can tell why Disney might be a bit iffy about that now. Panchito, like Joe Carioca, pops up every now and then. He's not holding his guns <laughs> these days. His name has actually been changed to Panchito Quintero Gonzalez in more recent work. And Pistoles isn't even really a Spanish word. It would be Pistolas if you want pistols right. in, in Spanish. So they kind of just took pistol and made it Spanish sounding, which is, yeah, a bit weird. But he's fun to be around, right? He's a cool guy. What do you think of Panchito? Um, yeah, he didn't make as big an impression of me as uh, Joe Carioca. But yeah, he, he is a fun and energetic sort of character. I think what's really interesting with both of these films is that they sell character really well. They introduce characters that are really likeable. When we did our recap bonus episode, something I said that I still sort of agree with is that actually a lot of the characters in the first five Disney films, I don't know, there aren't that many really lovable ones. Like, whereas Joe Carioca I thought was just super cool and you have the classic gang. Yeah, I, like I didn't mind Panchito. He wasn't my favourite though. But I did like these sequences where they're travelling through different areas of Mexico. So they're travelling on the magic Serapi, which moves just like Aladdin's magic carpet, me projecting my 90s Disney nostalgia onto this. And again, it's blending live action and animation. You have them flying to Lilongo in, in Veracruz and uh, to Acapulco Beach, where once again, Donald Duck is being a right pest and a perv, chasing down all the screaming women and yelling things like, I'll be right down, toots. Oh, Donald, leave the women alone. Yeah, when you were watching this movie, you sent me a text saying like, oh man, Donald Duck's really horny in this. And I was like, yeah, at what point in the last 40 minutes of this movie are you? Because it's pretty non-stop after Bahia. That is basically the thread that runs through this whole movie. It's Donald Duck lusting after live-action women. It's like, let's bring the Americas together, you know? Whether you are American, Mexican, or Brazilian, Donald Duck is coming for your women. That's what's really uniting these countries in this film. Yeah, he is being a big old creep. But there is some other fun stuff. There's some nice dancing. There's some slightly more wholesome dancing. In the Lilongo part of the sequence, 
I really enjoyed Joe Carioca playing the bass. He's like slapping the bass strings. That must have been something that was actually quite hard for them to do, maybe. But it was, yeah, it was just fun and toe-tapping. And and then you get to the final part of the sequence, where the singer Dora Luz comes in, and Donald Duck is obsessed with her. He's trying to kiss her. Uh, she's just trying to sing a nice song, and Donald Duck won't leave her alone. And then after Dora Luz, he runs into Carmen Molina. And then after the singing women, ooh, everything goes really, really trippy. Suddenly everyone's screaming. There are women divers. There are crazy flowers everywhere. Sam, I had no clue what was going on by the end of, of this sequence. It went nuts. I think literally the only way to interpret it, and this doesn't isn't just me being snarky or anything, is that Donald has gotten so powerfully horny that he's transitioned into another state of reality right he's he's in a surreal reverie this is the next closest thing to pink elephants in which Mm -hmm. dumbo was literally drunk out of his mind hallucinating elephants donald is hallucinating things like neon flowers with live action women's faces he's hallucinating the other two caballeros with like human women's legs which is an absolutely incredible visual image (laughs) then they all get on a horse which also has human women's legs and in the background there's like whispers going pretty girls that was awful the creepy whispers it's so creepy and i mean it all ends in a literal explosive climax with uh there's donald duck in a bull costume and fireworks everywhere that feels like symbolism to me sam it's the it's the horns again, isn't it? Yeah, it's not yeah. it's not very subtle, and and the explosion and the fireworks and everything. Yeah, wow. But this is for my money, with all due respect to Pink Elephants on Parade, which is in many ways a superior sequence. This is for my money the most innovative and artistically bold thing that Walt Disney put on screen not to obviously credit this solely or even mostly to Walt Disney but it's the most artistically bold thing that the studio put on screen during his lifetime it is out of this world if you don't have Disney plus this sequence is on YouTube entitled you belong to my heart so you can look that up because you have to see this I I just think the imagery that is on display here is so far beyond anything else that this studio would ever work on. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge claim. I I still personally think that the Pink Elephants is kind of weirder, but I just had no idea that this was coming. It kind of feels very, very abrupt at the end of this film, considering it starts with the little chilly penguin who wants to be warm, and then you go to Bahia and things start to heat up a bit. And by the end, you're just in a completely different place. It just sort of comes out from absolutely nowhere and sucks you around the face. Yeah, this is one of those movies where it's like, who is this actually for? Not just in terms of, <laughs> is this for American audiences or Latin American audiences? But mm-hmm. I talk a lot about how these Disney movies that we're talking about in this period were never intended to be exclusively for children. Much like most movies that were coming out at this point in time, they were family films. But in this movie, you start off with these two segments, which are fairly benign, almost difficult to imagine an adult really enjoying them, right? Like the the penguin sequence, that is for kids. And then it ends with Donald lusting after human women in a really explicit way that is impossible to interpret as anything other than like raw carnal desire. How is this the same movie? <laughs> it is all over the place, um, and and I think that's going to play a big factor in my overall assessment of uh, of the three caballeros. But that brings us to the end of that film. So 
Thus ends our main discussion of Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros. Normally, this would be the time when we would explore discarded, looking at what Disney changed and left out in its adaptations, but that doesn't really apply to Saludos Amigos or the Three Caballeros, so instead, let's move straight on to the reviews section. Sam, what did critics say at the time about Saludos Amigos, and what did they say about the Three Caballeros? So critics were generally actually kinder to Saludos Amigos than the Three Caballeros. We'll see whether that syncs up with our ratings in a minute, but Mm -hmm. I think the Three Caballeros was, for many of the reasons we've described, a little bit too much. It kind of pushed this project over the edge in, in the eyes of these critics. So to start with, in response to the first film, you had people like... A critic called Howard Barnes for the Herald Tribune writes that it's our once important piece of propaganda and a brilliant job of picture making. A guy called John McManus wrote a review in which he basically seems to get almost teary-eyed at how mature Disney has become as a studio by this point being able to address subjects like this. He says that he feels a mingled pride and sadness over the growing up of a beloved something we all foolishly hoped could stay young forever. By the time we get to the Three Caballeros, people are being a bit less kind and it is mostly to do with the sheer weirdness of it all. The New Yorker published a review entitled, What Hath Walt Wrought? Wow, ooh, that's, that feels biblical right there. Yeah. A mixture of atrocious taste, bogus mysticism, and authentic fantasy guaranteed to baffle any critic not hopelessly enchanted with the word Disney. And they also go on to echo some of our concerns, saying that a somewhat physical romance between a two-foot duck and a full-sized woman, although one happens to be a cartoon and the other pleasantly rounded and certainly mortal, insert eye roll here, is one of those things that might disconcert less squeamish authorities than the Hayes Office, the Hayes Office being the um, censorship board in America at that time. So that's Mm -hmm. quite a strong statement (laughs) on how unsavoury those sequences could be seen to be. So that's what the critics said. Were they box office hits? You mentioned that Saludos Amigos did really well for them. Yeah, I mean, at this point in Disney's history, it starts to get really difficult to come up with accurate numbers Mm -hmm. for the box office toll. I spent quite a while looking for this, and there's wildly varying estimates from different sources, so I don't really want to quote an exact number. But everywhere seems to agree that... Saludos Amigos was a modest success with a very low budget and therefore very profitable, and obviously a lot of it was subsidised by the government as well, whereas The Three Caballeros was successful, but it was much more expensive. So I think generally audiences and critics responded more to Saludos Amigos and were a bit turned off by a lot of what goes on in Caballeros. But Ben, what did you think? What are your star ratings for these movies? I feel like I'm getting a sense of it, but I'd really like to know. So I think for both of these, I'm probably about a three and a half, maybe edging towards a four. I think I would slightly edge towards Saludos Amigos over Three Caballeros, like the critics did, mainly because, like I said before, I thought the framing of Saludos Amigos was really interesting, like the live action stuff, the presentation of it all had a sort of wholesome quality to it, had a benevolent feel to it and even though not all of those segments in Saludos Amigos were particularly my favorite like I said I wasn't super keen on the on the goofy one and wasn't a massive fan of the Donald stuff either I have to say but the Brazil segment at the end is just 
like that's something that I had no idea that Disney ever did and it sends you out on such a high I felt so good by the end of that the three caballeros is kind of all over the place like you said I have no idea who it's for it starts off with a couple of kind of kiddie segments that weren't anything special but then you get to the Bahia segment and it's just sort of vibrant and jaw-dropping there are definitely sequences from these films that I will really treasure and I'm sure we'll go back to watch I don't think I'd watch either of them again in full necessarily but I'm I'm really glad I've seen them and I think they're a very interesting part of Disney's legacy so I think just in the way that they are a bit inconsistent but the highs are so high three seems a bit low four seems a bit much i'm gonna go for a cop out three and a half each what what about you how would you rate these that is how i predicted you would go i predicted Mm -hmm. you would come out on the side of saludos amigos it feels a bit more benny to me (laughs) and and it feels like that's the way you were leaning during the conversation i'm quite strongly in the other direction actually i'm gonna give saludos amigos a three and the three caballeros a four four horny donalds out of five (laughs) yeah and for me that's in part because i think these shorts the first three in saludos amigos before we get to the brazil segment really suffer in comparison to the other theatrical shorts that disney were putting out during this time like this is a subpar donald cartoon this is a subpar goofy cartoon and maybe it's because I'm more familiar with that kind of work than you. But for me, this was just like Disney really spinning the wheels, albeit in the service of a reasonably good cause and a high-minded endeavour. The Brazil segment puts it over the top, obviously. That's why I'm giving it three stars. It'd be a bit lower without that. Although the live-action stuff's interesting as well. Caballeros, it's just obviously the first couple of segments have the same issue, that they're just a bit dull and a bit... You know, not quite the high quality of what I'm used to from Disney. But by the time that the Caballeros come into it, it's just so cool and innovative and stylish, even if it's a little bit creepy and a little bit disjointed. It also has the song, which we haven't even mentioned, the Three Caballeros song, which has been stuck in my head for days while I've been watching these movies and researching this episode. It's a good song. Um, it hasn't necessarily stuck in my head as much, but I uh, I did enjoy, I mean, all of the music here. I think that's the main reason I would recommend it to people is just that the the music and the vibrancy of that in play with the animation is, is really infectious. So um, yeah, if you listen to this and you haven't seen these films, um, you probably have no idea what we've been talking about, but <laughs> watch them for interest sake. Um, Saludos is 40 minutes, Caballeros is just over an hour, and they're well worth checking out. And now it's time for Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. In the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there's a whole universe for each character, and Sam, as soon as I finished watching The Three Caballeros, Disney Plus tries to get you to autoplay or to watch something next, and the thing that it brought up was something called Legend of the Three Caballeros, with the description, Donald, Jose, and Panchito inherit a magical atlas and travel the world battling mythical monsters. I don't think we're going to be covering this, but what can you tell me about Legend of the Three Caballeros? Yeah, well, it's a TV show that came out in 2018 in which just that happens. I mean, I've gone a bit further than you and I've got the Wikipedia synopsis in front of me there, just really in-depth research here. (laughs) Listen to this, right? 
When Donald Duck inherits a cabana from his great-grandfather Clinton Coote in the new Quackmore Institute, alongside Brazilian parrot Joe Carioca and Mexican rooster Panchito Gonzalez, they discover a magic book that releases a goddess named Zandra. The goddess explains that Donald, Joe and Panchito are the descendants of a trio of adventurers who long ago travelled to stop the evil sorcerer Lord Feldrake from taking over the world and sealed him in a magical staff. Meanwhile, the staff containing Feldrake is discovered by his descendant, Baron Von Sheldgoose, the corrupt president <laughs> of the new Quackmore Institute. Sheldgoose sets out to revive Feldrake. The new three caballeros must learn to become heroes to save the world from disaster. It's a bit more kind of... It's in a higher register than what we're used to, right? This yeah. is fantasy. This is action. That's some deep lore right there. That is heavy stuff. There's an episode that ends with the three caballeros being killed. What? Presumably <laughs> they come back. Yeah, they come back right at the start of the next episode in the underworld, but it ends with them being killed. Take that, kids. Enjoy that with you, cereal. It says six plus on Disney Plus. <laughs> age rating they're all slain by the, the god of death and in the cover image on disney plus just to give people a bit of an idea of of just how much of a hodgepodge this is which i guess is in keeping with the three caballeros movie they're all holding swords and they're surrounded by a minotaur a goblin and the ghosts of several dead presidents i think we might have to do a separate series we'll, we'll start a patreon and we'll watch every episode of legend of the three caballeros um but what are the other parts of the lasting legacy of saludos amigos and the three caballeros do we see joe carioca again joe and panchito both pop up in a bunch of kind of comic strips from around that period well from like the 40s 50s and 60s these comic strips also introduce panchito's horse senor martinez who sounds like a great guy and the Araquan bird had a bit of an afterlife yes. in comic strips as well. There was an aborted third film, actually, which was going to carry on the story, such as it is, of the three caballeros. Because obviously, well, the original government contract specified that they had to produce a certain number of shorts, more than they actually ended up making for these films. But by the time Amigos and Caballeros were in production as feature films, they thought, okay, let's cancel that, let's make it. A trilogy let's make three feature length films instead of all these shorts but because caballeros didn't do too well and of course because world war ii ended as did the good neighbor initiative this film was cancelled it was going to be mostly based in cuba and was made in quite close collaboration with the cuban government it was going to include a fourth caballero who was going to be a fighting cock hmm interesting seems a bit dicey um from an animal rights perspective but there you go and they completed, I believe they completed two segments of this, and they both show up later on. Ooh, okay, that's interesting. That's a good teaser. You'll have to let me know when those arise, but... Um, You'll probably know. <laughs> yeah, I'll be like, why is there a fighting cock in Cuba? <laughs> that sounds familiar. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to that. And yeah, is there anything else? Is there anything theme park-wise? There is. There is a theme park ride based on the three caballeros in Epcot. Is it nuts? Does Donald explode with horny energy? Well, Ben, almost. <laughs> you've been quite prophetic there in what you've said. It's in... Epcot's Mexico Pavilion, for people who don't know, there's an area in Epcot where they have different pavilions based around different countries in the world, and they have restaurants and bars and stores and things based on lots of various different countries, and one of them's always been Mexico. And for a long time, they had kind of a generic ride. It's a dark ride where you're in a boat going down a stream through various Mexican landscapes. 
and in 2007 they decided to update it to include these original IP that they already own, Joe Carioca and obviously the Mexican character Panchito Pistoles, Panchito Gonzalez, sorry to use his modern name. And it keeps the bones of the original ride, which does look really cool. Lots of really beautiful recreations of, of Mexican cities and mountains and things like that. But it includes this narrative, which plays out on a bunch of screens as you go through the ride, of the three caballeros have been booked for the gig of their lives, a big show. But Donald Duck has gone missing, and they've got to track him down. It's a bit like that movie Get Him to the Greek with Russell Brand. You know the one? Is that yes. a current reference? Yeah, but with, with Donald Duck in the Russell Brand role. And there's lots of really cool computer animation on these screens mm-hmm. in the style of the original movie of the Caballeros as Joe and Panchito fly through the streets of Mexico trying to find him, and as Donald gets himself into various scrapes, which does include succumbing to his famous horniness. There are scenes where he's making goo-goo eyes at human women in this ride, because how couldn't there be? I mean, that is what the Three Caballeros is. They had to include it somewhere. And then it all comes to a head as they find Donald, and your boat goes past a stage on which all three are performing in animatronic form, so not animations, actual animatronics, until a few days ago, Ben, at which point people on this ride in Epcot started to notice that something big was missing, which was Donald Duck himself had disappeared from the scene at the end, from the concert. Oh. And he'd been replaced with a sombrero and a bouquet of flowers, which strongly suggests to me that Donald Duck has passed away. Oh, wow. Okay. I don't know what to make of that. I mean, I would imagine that what's happened is the animatronic's broken down and they've had to <laughs> take it away to repair it for several days now, as of this point in recording, by the time you're listening to this. Oh, my God. Who, <laughs> who knows if he'll be back. If you go past, you see Joe and Panchito singing the hearts out next to a, a really kind of maudlin memorial for Donald Duck. So rest in peace. Wow, what a sad note on which to end. We're going to end the Saludos Amigos and Three Caballeros episode with just two remaining caballeros. This episode is dedicated to Donald Duck, Friday the 13th to the present day. (laughs) Which year? Nobody knows. And that is it for this week's class. Join us again for next week's seminar, when we'll once again be exploring a pair of bounteous packages. Firstly, Make My Music followed by fun and fancy free. And as we mentioned in the recent bonus episode, for some reason, Make Mine Music is one of the very few classic Disney animated movies that isn't actually on Disney+, Plus, but it is readily available on DVD, so if you're watching along with us, be sure to try and find a copy on disc. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please do just leave us a little review or a star rating on the podcast platform of your choice, And in return, we'll thank you by getting Sam to record a voicemail message for you in his best Donald Duck impression. But for now, it's goodbye from Sam. Oh my god, that was terrifying. (laughs) And it's goodbye from me. Thanks so much for listening, and adios, amigos. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefets. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Disneyversity.